Today's readings are 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 7 and 14 through 19. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even often to be misrepresented God, representing God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied. This is God's word. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. And if Christ is risen, then everyone who places his or her faith in him will also rise. The resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees the resurrection of every follower of Christ. When my oldest son was about five years old, he would accompany me on visits, hospital visits. He grew especially close to a 40-year-old woman who had brain cancer. Her name was Angel. When she passed, I had to break the news to my son. So I sat down with him, and I said, I have some bad news to share with you. Angel has died. His eyes lit up, and he said, that means she's all better now. That's true if Christ is raised. And every assertion that we make of a loved one who dies as a believer in Christ is true. If we say he or she's in a better place now or they're in heaven with God now, they'll have eternity with the Lord. These are not wishful thinking statements. They are realities because Jesus Christ is raised. Those who believe in him will follow in the same kind of resurrection. But the resurrection of Christ does not only comfort us in the passing of others, it allows us to begin to look at our lives through an eternal perspective so that no matter what we're struggling with, no matter what difficulties we have, suffering, we have a security in Jesus Christ, as Paul said, based on this truth. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. 
Jesus' resurrection means that we know the final chapter of our stories. And it will read, he or she died and went into the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, meet us with the glorious truths of the resurrection today. Confirm in us as believers that this is a reality that transforms our lives. And for those who do not yet believe, Lord, may, may they have open minds and open hearts to what is said today, that they might come to know Jesus Christ for who he is, what he has done, and that he is living today. Amen. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed the course of history. And it's changed the course of the lives of many of you here today. But belief isn't enough. It has to be true as well. I can believe that the Zakin Bridge will get me from Somerville to Boston. I can. But if it really wasn't strong enough, it wouldn't get me there. If I had an antique piece of furniture that's very fragile and really wouldn't hold anyone up, but I believed it would, it might change the way I decorate my house. I might put it in a place a prominent place where people might sit in it. it. It would change things, but as soon as someone sat in it, it would collapse and fall apart. It's not enough just to believe about Jesus Christ. It has to be true as well. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at some of the evidences of the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to look at the message that people need to believe in order to unite themselves with the resurrection of Christ. So let's start with uh, the resurrection of Jesus himself. Now, many people struggle over the fact that this is a miracle. And they may not believe that miracles happen. And there have been doubters from the beginning of the first century, shortly after Jesus believed, there were doubters. When Paul stood before the Roman governor Festus and the Jewish king Agrippa, he spoke to them of his story. And he highlighted the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Festus blew up and he said, Paul, you are a madman. You've gone insane. Your, your great learning has made you mad. And Paul responded, I'm not mad. And Festus, you know about these things because they weren't done in a corner. They were done out in the open. And everyone knows about it. Festus and Grippa didn't believe because they didn't look into the evidence. In the second century, a critic named Celsus ridiculed the story of the resurrection. He said it was invented by a hysterical female or perhaps some others who were deluded by the same sorcery 
who either dreamt or through wishful thinking had a hallucination, or which is more likely, they wanted to impress others by telling this fantastic tale. Doubters have been here through all the centuries, and there are many today. German New Testament scholar Gerd Lunemann kind of captures one of the main thoughts of today when he called the resurrection an empty formula that must be rejected by anyone holding a scientific worldview. Science says he couldn't rise. But science isn't the only discipline that seeks out truth. Historians do as well. They seek the truth of what's happened in the past. And many, many historians, scholars, believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a multitude of books. There's an 800-page tome that N.T. Wright wrote about the resurrection, addressing every criticism. I'm not going to read that this morning. And I'm going to give you a large array of the evidences for his resurrection. But I want to center on just a few of the evidences that come from the passage that was read this morning. See, until 30 years ago, a common view was that the story of the resurrection was so far removed from the death of Jesus Christ that it was clearly an embellishment one person would tell the story to another about Jesus and it would get embellished. And his story passed from person to person, from generation to generation. Finally, you ended up with this story of this itinerant preacher who died and that he was raised. That theory has been thoroughly debunked. The words at the beginning of this chapter, where Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins and what raised from the grave, were words that historians believe were written and recited within months or the first two years after Jesus died. Even though Paul wrote them around 55 AD, he's saying, I delivered these words to you. They're the first importance. They're the words that I took, that I measured with the disciples. And the scholars look at this and they realize that this isn't something Paul simply said, that this is an early Christian creed. Like we just recited a catechism, that this was a creed which the Christians spoke in their services shortly after Jesus died and was raised. Gary Habermas, an ex expert on the resurrection evidences, says this. Here's a conclusion that virtually every scholar who writes, I don't care how far to the left, how far to the right, where they teach, that virtually everyone will agree with the phrase that we can tell that this passage is an early creedal tradition. Gerd Lunemann, the critic I just quoted, dates these words to within two to three years after the crucifixion of Jesus. 
Perhaps the best-known skeptic of all, Bart Ehrman, admits that we can trace this material to one year after the cross. There wasn't time for the story to be embellished. It is something that was believed immediately. And it forces Luneman to conclude, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and his disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Lord. Because Ehrman and Luneman do not believe in miracles, they will accept any alternative to what is really a historical fact. The disciples saw Jesus. They believe it was a hallucination. History says it was a reality because it transformed all of history. Another evidence that in this passage is the fact that Paul lists names. He says, Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's very honest here, isn't he? He says, the witnesses, some have died. They're not all alive, but there are enough alive that you can check it out. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me. So as he names names, these are people who would be known that others could go to to check out the reality and the facts surrounding the matter. But the Gospels name more people. They name the priests before whom Jesus stood. They cite the Council of the Sanhedrin as condemning Jesus. They name Pontius Pilate as the one who sentenced him. And they name two members of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, as those who took the body and put him in Joseph's tomb. If I were to make up a story, if any of us were to make up a story, we wouldn't name real names, especially such prominent names where the story could be tested. It would be like me trying to create a story that Ruth Bader Ginsburg rose from the dead, and I would write, Clarence Thomas took Ruth Bader Ginsburg's body and put it in a grave that he had purchased. If I wrote that within, within one or two years after she died, everyone would go to Clarence Thomas and say, is this true? And he'd say, it's not true. If I was to make up a story, I wouldn't use such prominent, well-known people because the Sanhedrin was like our Supreme Court. It was the ruling body of the, for the Jews. But Another evidence is not the list of names, but the names that are left off the list. Notice he begins with Cephas, yet if we read the Gospels, they talk about the women, especially Mary being the first to see Jesus. So if this is written before the Gospels and you're going to make up a story, wouldn't you build it off this creed that the church has been reciting for decades? And wouldn't we write that Cephas was the first one to see Jesus? So why did Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John 
have the women as the first witnesses. Because it happened. And so we, we, it's curious, why doesn't Paul name those women? Why didn't the creed name the women? The answer is found in Josephus, Jewish historian of the first century, who said, tells us that in this patriarchal society, the testimony of women was not admitted in a Jewish law court. And so the creed is developed from what would be evidence, the people that would be believed. And notice it talks about seeing five, 500 brethren. What about the sisters? They were probably with the brothers. But again, they're left off the list because of the patriarchal society they're in. But story isn't made up because you wouldn't make up a story that didn't align with these words. Then we ask the question, why would Paul make up such a story? In fact, why did Paul believe it? Paul didn't grow up in a culture that accepted the message of Jesus Christ. He grew up in a culture that was hostile to it. Paul didn't get any profit, didn't gain a profit from his preaching the gospel. He didn't think, well, if I start preaching the gospel, I'm going to get so many followers giving to me that I'll be able to build a mansion or, or buy the latest uh, sports camel. There's no profit in it for him. Instead, all it would bring was persecution, suffering, and death. And yet he chose that avenue. Why? Because he saw the risen Lord. And I'm also struck by Paul's honesty. You know, there are a lot of people who think Christians have simply accepted wishful thinking because they're afraid of death. And so they put their hope in this story. And it doesn't matter if you believe, if, if, if what you believe is true or not, it's the fact that you believe. Paul will have none of that, as we see in verses 17 through 19. It says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are people most to be pitied. There are many, many believers listening to this message, listening to this message around the world today. If Christ is not raised, then we are sending a false message to our world. If Christ is not raised, then we are among the people who are to be most pitied. And Paul is honest about that. And he's also honest, as he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He won't attach himself to a lie simply to make people feel better. He wants to speak the truth, and he has spoken the truth. 
Robert Spitzer summarizes, why did Christians worship a defeated, crucified Jesus as Lord and endure persecution for that worship? How did Christianity become the most inspired and dynamically expansive missionary organization in the history of religions with a publicly humiliated and executed Messiah as its sole leader? Above all, why did it become such a powerful messianic movement capable of threatening the Roman Empire within a few generations after that same empire executed its Messiah? What kind of cause could explain so many unique phenomena? Only one. Jesus is risen. And so, what is the message that people have to believe to unite themselves with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? To be raised with him. Paul says in Romans 1.16, it's the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See, the power of salvation is not our adherence to a religion. Paul adhered to the religion, the right religion of the day, Judaism, but he doesn't appeal to that. Even though Paul was was obedient to the law. He doesn't say, obey the law. That's the power of salvation. Even though Paul's faith was so sincere, so deep, that he persecuted Christians, he doesn't say, your sincerity and your faithfulness is the power of salvation. No, he says the gospel of Jesus Christ is the salvation. And this passage gives us that gospel. It says, I delivered for you as a first important what I also received. Christ died for our sins according, in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to twelve. So there are true truths in this passage. One, Christ died for our sins. And it's proven to the Jewish people because it's in accordance to the scriptures. It was predicted. It's evidenced to the Gentile community by the fact that he was buried. He rose again. On the third day he rose. Evidence to the Jewish community because it's in accordance with the scripture. It was predicted. Evidence to the Gentile community. He appeared to Jesus, to, to Cephas, to over 500, and so many others. Two pieces of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. He rose again. That's what he's asking us to believe. Jesus died as our substitute. He took the punishment that our sins deserved upon himself. He took our place. In the tale of two cities, you have two characters who are lookalikes, Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton. They're both in love with the same woman. Darnay marries her. But he's eventually arrested and sentenced to death. And Carton, because he loves Lucy, actually 
chooses to have her husband freed. And so he goes to visit Darnay in prison. He drugs Darnay, changes clothes with him, and Darnay's taken out, carried out. And Sidney Carton is now sitting there awaiting death. The next day he's taken to the guillotine and executed. He took the punishment that had been imposed upon Darnay. That's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He took the punishment that we deserve on himself. To believe this, we need to believe that we have sin that needs to be paid for, that we need a Savior to take our place and to take our sins so we'd be free before God. And as Travis said earlier, it's, it's not popular to believe that we're sinners and deserve judgment. But we are. I want to just read a little portion of Mark. For those who really think, really, I'm not that bad of a sinner. Jesus lists a number of sins. And I want you to listen to these and kind of check off in your life how you're doing. He says, Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, thefts, murders, adultery. Most people are probably saying, oh, I'm doing pretty well. He continues, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Not doing so well. What he says is all of these come from the heart. He puts them in the same list because they are coming out of us. We are sinners. And so others, some might say, well, I know I've sinned, but God is pure love and he's going to accept everybody. But God is also pure justice and holiness. Today, every corner of our nation is crying out for justice. We also want and need a just God, and we have one. And so, we are sinners who stand before the judgment seat of God. We will be judged. Some people believe we're sinners. We will be judged but we can make it. We can pay our own penalty. We will do good deeds. We'll go to church. We'll be religious. We'll be philanthropists. Nothing can make up for our sin. We are destitute. We need a savior. Like a drowning man who can't swim cries out to the lifeguard, save me. We in our sin, standing in the judgment, under the judgment of God, unable to save ourselves, need to cry out for a savior. And there is one in Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. And so whoever believes in him, now notice, I don't say, and the scripture doesn't say believe about Jesus. It says believe in 
Jesus. There's a big difference believing about something and believing in something. I may believe all about airplanes. I may believe that an airplane, as I get to the airport, that that could take me to Spain if I got in it. But I only believe in it when I actually get in that plane and allow it to take me to Spain. We can believe all the facts about Jesus. We can go to church and proclaim them and we can say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. We can believe all about that. But we don't believe in Jesus until we place our trust in him like we place our trust in an airplane. When we say, it's not me who can save myself. It's Jesus Christ having taken my sin who saves me. So if I stood before God and he asked me, you know, why should I let you into my presence? If I say I believe I'm a good person, I'm not as bad as others, I'm believing in myself. But if I say there's nothing in me, it's what Jesus Christ did for me that allows me into your presence, that's believing in him. Jesus tells a parable about two men who go up to pray. One is a a Pharisee, a religious leader. The other is a tax collector, a scoundrel, a sinner. And the Pharisee gets up and he prays things like, uh, thank you, God, that you made so, me so wonderful and I tithe and, and I, I fast regularly for you. I follow you. And what's he saying? Who does he believe in? He believes in himself. The tax collector can't even look up to God and he says, God, be propitious to me, a sinner. He realizes he's a sinner. The word propitious is, God, you have to be satisfied. Your justice has to be satisfied on my behalf. I can't earn my way to you. You have to open that gate for me. And he did in Jesus Christ when he died for our sins. And we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. As Paul said earlier, or as we read earlier, Paul said, if Christ is not raised, then we're still in our sins. Because his proclamation of dying for our sins has no proof to it, has no teeth to it. And if he's still in the grave then his promise that we will come out of the grave, that we'll have eternal life with him, it's all false. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our resurrection to new life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that everything he said is true. Because Christ is raised, he has brought the kingdom of God today. It is our ministry to bring that kingdom to those around us because he is risen we know he's alive and that he'll come back again and when he comes back he is going to right every wrong he is going to reverse every curse that sin brought there'll be no more death there'll be no more tears this is all true because Christ is alive he has risen this Easter day I hope that every believer is refreshed in these two truths about Jesus Christ. That you have greater confidence 
that Christ is who he said he is and that you have life with him and that that will motivate us to live lives like Christ and it will motivate us to bring this message because if Christ is not raised, we are to be most pitied. But if Christ is raised, then those who believe in him are to be pitied. Let's bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ is risen. Our, hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your words, your truth, for the transformed lives like that of Paul that show us the way, such a transformed life from persecutor to preacher because of one event, the resurrection of Jesus. Sink these truths through your spirit deep into our hearts. May we proclaim his resurrection, not just in our church service today, but throughout the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.